Hebrews, God only knows. So that's probably where we have to rest it. Now, we can kind of work out uh, where uh, it was uh, sort of based in terms of its context. And uh, it, it seems in all probability that the author is writing to a group of Orthodox Jews who had converted to the, the Christian faith. They were probably situated in Rome because it's there that this letter is first quoted by the early church fathers and uh, they had probably been in the faith for some decades uh, and yet now they had come to face a lot of pressure, probably beginnings of persecution from the, the Roman states. Um, the persecution was heavy, but it wasn't ultra-severe. You can tell this from the book of Hebrews. They hadn't uh, been persecuted to the point of uh, shedding their blood, of laying down their lives, but certainly there were Christians who'd been put into prison, and there were Christians who'd had their property confiscated because they were uh, speaking of their faith in Christ. And so under this kind of pressure, and having been in the faith for some time, there's a temptation uh, to kind of pull back a bit. And uh, it seems that some of them were thinking about kind of retreating back to the synagogue, uh, because the Jewish religion was allowed by the Roman state. It was a kind of legal religion, which Christianity wasn't. And uh, there was a sense, perhaps, that actually if they went back to the synagogue, well, they they could still really maintain their faith. You know, they still believed in God. Uh, There was so much that uh, you could see between the Jewish faith and the Christian faith that, of course, was so similar. And so under pressure, there's this temptation to go back to Orthodox Judaism. And really the writer is saying through the book of Hebrews, you can't do that. Uh, Everything in Christ is so much better than what you previously knew. And so you find that through the book, he repeatedly uh, compares Christ to uh, sort of essential things in in Judaism. And so with regard to priesthood, certainly there were Jewish priests, but Christ is a better priest. And certainly Judaism had its sacrifices, but Jesus has has offered a far superior sacrifice. And the the Jews knew about covenants, but with Jesus Christ, there is a, a far better covenant And so he's saying to them, you can't go back because everything in Christ is so much better. So it's not surprising because he's going to develop the the, uh, theme in that way that the writer begins with the absolute superiority of Jesus Christ. That's how he opens up at the beginning of this book. And he is the exalted one. So Christianity is not about religious systems, it's about the person of Christ. And uh, Christianity is not a matter of rules and regulations, it's about life in Christ. And Christianity isn't negative, don't, don't do this and don't do that. Rather, it, in a way, it's do. Do come confidently into the presence of God, for freedom Christ has set us free. Now, I've got two main points, and the first one I want to raise with you is that God has spoken. God has spoken. And you see that right at the very beginning here. In the past, God spoke to our forefathers through the prophets at many times and in various ways, but in these last days, he has spoken to us by his Son. Now, my observation would be that there are many Christians today who are looking for some kind of breakthrough 
in their lives. Uh, it's very easy for Christians to feel as though they're held back in some way, and they, they may feel kind of uh, circumscribed by their history, or uh, you may feel kind of hemmed in because of your health, or your circumstances are difficult, or your family situation is awkward, and so you kind of feel restricted. And there are so many Christians who are looking for some kind of victory in their Christian life. They want to see a real breakthrough. And very often when Christians feel like that, there's a tendency to say, if only God would speak to me. That's what I need. I want God to really speak to me. Well, what we're seeing here is that God is a speaking God. That in the past, he spoke through the prophets. And the writer says he spoke many times through the prophets, because some of the prophets had a lot to say. <laughs> you read Isaiah, there's quite a lot that the, the prophet there, for example, was saying. But also God spoke through the prophets in many ways. And that, that speaking, really, of the way in which the prophets did, at times, convey their prophetic message from God in, in quite extraordinary ways. If you think back to the Old Testament. So, I, I mean, Jonah, he, he came with a message from God after he'd been vomited out of a great fish. And uh, you can think of prophets like Ezekiel and Jeremiah, who got into some very strange prophetic actions at times. Or Hosea, uh, who was uh, one who went to marry a woman at the... Uh, really command of God, and and she was unfaithful, and uh, uh, he had to go and woo her back, and so the prophet speaks out of his experience there. So there's a, a lot of prophetic action. God spoke in many ways. Now, let me say that we believe that God is still speaking through prophets, even today, but we don't believe that the prophets who speak today are infallible. They carry a burden from God, uh, but in that burden from God which is to be discharged, they must never go beyond the Bible and they must never contradict the Bible. Uh, The Bible is the standard by which all prophecy today is judged to be authentic. Uh, I remember uh, that there was a pastor who spoke to me in Brighton after being there uh, a number of years and he said, why is it that in your church that you teach that prophecy today is equal to what we read in the Bible. And I said, how do you get that idea? We've never, ever taught that. The Bible is the authority by which we judge and weigh any prophecy today. So, for example, if someone here was to stand up during this meeting and say, uh, the Lord says that Jesus will return on October the 21st this year, do you know what we do? We take them outside and shoot them. Yeah. <laughs> we, pr- we probably wouldn't be quite that severe, but actually uh, we wouldn't allow that to stand because that's not what is in the Word of God. But we do believe that there is prophecy today. Now what the writer here is doing is contrasting the biblical prophets who spoke in the past, the, the prophets of the Old Testament, with the fact that in these last days God has spoken to us by his Son. And so the implication is that God's Son, Jesus, is clearly superior to any other prophet who had previously spoken. And when Hebrews says that God has spoken to a three son in these last days, he's not saying uh, God has spoken to us, as it were, recently, but these are the days of fulfillment. These are the days of the completeness of God's Word in the coming of Jesus. So we we don't need fresh revelation beyond this. God has spoken to us uh, supremely through Jesus Christ. 
In Job chapter 26 and verse 14, Job says, How faint the whisper that we hear of him. Well, since Christ has come, it's not quite so faint. Right? We've, we, we hear more loudly, if you like, from God, because there's a, an age of fulfillment and completion, and God has spoken to us through his Son. But let me say again, because I don't want to be misunderstood, there are modern-day prophets. Uh, not infallible, uh, but sometimes these modern-day prophets are very gifted, for example, uh, and very accurate at personal prophecy. Uh, I wonder if you've ever been in a meeting like that, uh, where you have a prophet and they're very good at bringing personal prophecy, prophetic words to individuals. Uh, If you've ever been in a meeting like that, I wonder if you know what I mean. You, You kind of live with two desperations. On the one hand, you're, you're desperately thinking, please don't pick on me. You know, I really don't want you to pick on me. Uh, but you're also desperate, please do pick on me. You know, I want to hear from God. And you, you're kind of uh, looking down uh, and kind of smiling at the same time, you know, to try and sort of, don't pick on me, but please, you know, pick on me. And uh, I, I've, uh, I've had one or two extraordinary experiences in that room. I remember a, a number of years ago, there was a lady, highly, prof- highly gifted prophetically, and she was speaking to a small group of New Frontiers uh, leaders. I was in the group and she started to prophesy over us and she came to me and uh, she put a hand on me and I'd never ever seen her before. She'd never seen me before and the first thing she said to me was, you will no longer run in your shoes but in your socks. Now, nobody else got that. I got it immediately. My name's Hosier. She had my name. And that's, uh, that's uh, so often the kind of subtle way that God works through prophets. It can be quite subtle, and obviously I was then listening very carefully to what she had to say for, to me. Uh, I've sometimes spoken to prophets like this, and I've said to them, do you find that people chase you for a word? And uh, they'll say to me something like, yes, I can remember one person say to me, I've, I've left the meeting, I've been in the car park, and I've had people rushing up, rushing up to me from the meeting saying, have you got a word for me? Have you got a word for me? Uh, and uh, really, we've got to understand that prophets like this do carry a burden, but they can't perform on demand. Uh, you know, they're not going to give you spiritual horoscopes, if I can put it like that. You know, I must have a word for today. Prophets do speak today, and we are blessed if they do speak to us. But please, I don't want any of you to say here this afternoon, why doesn't God ever speak to me? Because the scripture is clear here that God has spoken. And he's spoken to us by his Son. And that means not just through what Jesus has said, but actually through who Jesus actually is because he is the word of God. So with the coming of Jesus, God has spoken to us. So for all of us here this afternoon as believers, God is not silent. And people can say, oh, why hasn't God spoken to me? But he has. And we can ignore it, we can let it bounce off us, we can look for something more convenient. But Hebrews begins by saying, God has spoken. So we need to listen. And then, having established that, we now go on to a wonderful description of Jesus. And it's in this wonderful description that the writer gives of Jesus, I want to try and illustrate to you exactly how it is that God has spoken to us. And I want to put all of this under another heading, that Jesus is supreme. 
Now, there are several things that I want us to see here as we work through particularly verses 2 and 3. And I want you to see how God has spoken to us. So the first thing that we're reading here about Jesus, it's in verse 2, that Jesus is the one whom God has appointed heir of all things. And this actually reflects one of the Psalms, because if you go back to Psalm 2 and verse 8, this is a messianic psalm, and what we read there is, Ask of me, and I will make the nations your inheritance, and the ends of the earth your possession. So this is really prophetic of Jesus Christ, that for him, uh, the nations will be his inheritance, and the ends of the earth his possession. There is no nation, and there is no people group, that Christ's saving power will not reach. Jesus is the heir of all things. And Jesus will conquer the world by love, not by fear. Now, I want you to realize here that God is speaking to us. And what is he saying? Well, I would suggest this. God is saying through Jesus here that Christian faith, which we embrace, is not some kind of lost cause. I had to settle this something over 40 years ago. I began my uh, full-time ministry, I know we're all in full-time ministry in one sense, but uh, uh, if I can use it in a narrower sense. I began my ministry uh, full-time something over 40 years ago, and I began as a Baptist pastor. And when I became a Baptist pastor, the state of the Baptist church in this country was, was really very low. Uh, the Baptist churches uh, were not growing, baptismal figures were declining uh, year by year, and there were about 3,000 Baptist churches in this country, and the figures at that time were that about six of them out of the 3,000 were growing. <laughs> so things were pretty dire. Now, I'm sure there were more than six who were putting on, putting on one or two members, but you know, there was only six who were making any significant growth at all out of about 3,000 Baptist churches. And here I, I was going to give my life okay, to uh, full-time ministry. Now, I'm not sure that I articulated it in quite the way that it's spoken of here, but I had to come into ministry convinced that whatever I happened to see around me at that time, which was a picture of decline, nevertheless, I did believe deep down in my heart that the final victory would be with Jesus Christ. Right, that he would conquer, that he would rule, and that he would reach the nations of the world. And that's what we're being told here, that Christ will possess the ends of the earth. And we might feel that at the present time we can't see it, but God has spoken and he will deliver. I've heard that uh, when the Americans came into the war, in, in the Second World War, they actually joined you know, with us in the Second World War, that uh, our Prime Minister at that time, Winston Churchill, was, was asleep. And so one of the aides went in to wake him up and said, Mr. Churchill, Prime Minister, America has entered the war. And Churchill apparently immediately said, we've won. Now, at that moment, we didn't look like winning at all. We were being thrown back on every front. We weren't making any advance. But Churchill knew that with the might of America alongside us, we would win. Victory was certain. 
And friends, it's like that for us who are in Christ, okay? We've won. It may not always look like that, right? It may seem at certain times we're we're forced back, that we're not breaking through here, but actually with all the might of God on our side, the victory of Christ is ultimately certain. He is the heir of all things, and Christ will inherit the whole created universe. If you go to Ephesians chapter 1, there's a a wonderful statement there of this. In Ephesians 1 verse 9 and 10, God made known to us the mystery of his will according to his good pleasure which he purposed in Christ. So what we're reading here is that God has revealed something previously hidden to us. And what he's revealed is his ultimate purpose in Christ. Then it says to be put into effect when the times will have reached their fulfillment. So God has revealed something previously hidden, but it's now made clear to us who are in Christ that that he has a plan to fulfill something at the end of the ages, at the end of history, and it's this, to bring all things in heaven and on earth together under one head, even Christ. So God's ultimate plan and purpose is that finally the whole universe will be regenerated, renewed and brought together in utter perfection under the headship and rule of Jesus Christ. Because Christ is the heir of all things. Now you you could be here this this afternoon and you, you may have been tempted recently to pull back a bit. And you could be saying, well, you know, we, we've heard a lot of preaching, a lot of teaching, uh, a lot of hype, you might say, even, you know, where's the advance? You know, where's the breakthrough? Friends, God has spoken. Christ is the heir of all things, and he is going to deliver. Now, what we see next is that uh, through Jesus, God created the world. It says here, through him, he made the universe. So, through Jesus, God created the world. He brought all things into existence. All Christians are creationists in this sense, that all Christians believe that once there was no visible universe, now there is an entire visible universe. And Hebrews chapter 11 and verse 3 puts it perfectly for us, doesn't it? It says, by faith, we understand that the universe was formed at God's command so that what is seen was not made out of what was visible. Once there was absolutely nothing, I mean we can't really think of absolutely nothing, but at one time there was absolutely nothing at all, God speaks and a universe exists. Now, when we speak, it's not usually quite that sensational. <laughs> but let me tell you this, that what we speak can be creative. So we can speak and we can create joy. We speak and we can create fear. We speak and we can create sadness. What we speak is sometimes creative. God spoke and an entire universe came into existence. Now I know that Christians today will uh, debate the age of the earth and even the methodology of God's creation. I'm not going to touch that here this afternoon. I simply want to keep to the main point here that is through Christ God spoke and a universe came into existence. It's not that nothing created the universe out of nothing, but rather God has spoken to us through his Son. Now, what's God saying here? Well, perhaps quite a few things, but at least I'd suggest this. What God is saying to us is the earth is the Lord's and everything in it. Therefore, enjoy it, because God does. 
He enjoys his creation. And the scripture says that God has given us everything richly to enjoy. I wonder if you really do enjoy creation, that you really appreciate it. It's been my privilege to go quite a lot to South Africa uh, over the past 20 22 years or so, and uh, whenever I'm in South Africa, we go to Cape Town and uh, we look up at Table Mountain. And I mean, Table Mountain's just spectacular, and you think, wow, you know, just fantastic what God has created. But often when I'm in South Africa, I talk to South Africans, of course, about where I've come from. And they say, well, you know, where, where do you come from in England? Well, up to now, uh, it's been Brighton. So I've said I've come from Brighton. And I'm amazed how many South Africans know Brighton. And almost always, they will say, oh, that's where you have rocks on the beach. <laughs> you know, of course, the Brighton beach is all pebbles, but to uh, South Africans, it's rocks. That's where you have rocks on the beach. But then they say, and this has always struck me as funny, they say, actually, I really like them. <laughs> and I think, well, it doesn't quite compare with the Cape Town beaches, which are kind of miles of wonderful, glorious golden sand. Now, it's true in Brighton, you don't have sharks that can eat you, which they do in Cape Town, uh, but somehow it doesn't quite live up to Cape Town and Table Mountain. But friends, we can enjoy God's creation. And let's remind ourselves also that actually, in a way, we can say all the time, it's only going to improve. Because one day there's going to be a new heavens and a new earth. And creation will be brought back to total perfection under the reign and rule of Jesus Christ. Next we see that Jesus is the radiance of God's glory. Into verse 3 here. The sun is the radiance of God's glory. Now there's a very obvious illustration here. The sun is in the sky uh, sometimes, and uh, uh, it's a blaze of light. Uh, and, I mean, it's massively far away, isn't it? 93 million miles, is it? Massively far away. And yet the rays of the sun reach us, and we actually feel the sun. We are touched. We can actually feel the sun. Now, God is majestic. He is glorious. He's utterly beyond us. But nevertheless... He touches our lives. We feel God in the coming of Jesus Christ because God radiates his glory to us in Jesus. Now, I want to make this practical in seeking to apply it. If you, if you go to John's Gospel in the first chapter there and verse 14, we read, The word became flesh and made his dwelling among us. We have seen his glory the glory of the one and only Son who came from the Father, full of grace and truth. So what is God saying to us through Jesus? God is saying to us that in the coming of his Son, he's speaking to us about his glory. And actually, we see the glory of God in Jesus, who is full of grace and truth. Now, has God spoken to you? Yes, he has through his Son, and he has told us about his glory. You see, there's grace in that glory. And we are touched by the grace of God. God's favour freely given to us, though totally undeserved by us. And also, there's truth in that glory. And we are touched by that truth. There's something I feel very strongly here, I've felt it for many years, and that is that we get the full truth in Jesus. Outside of Jesus, 
uh, ultimately, ultimately, nothing finally makes sense. Have you, do you know this experience of, of having been outside of Christ and Christianity might have seemed irrelevant to you and uh, no meaning to you and then, then one day something happens in your life, you're born again, you cross the line, you come into Christ. And when you come into Christ, immediately you know that your sins are forgiven, you're on your way to heaven, you're going to spend your eternity with God. But also something else happens at the same time. Did you notice that? You get the truth. Now everything makes sense where I came from, why I'm here, where I'm going. It's a belt of truth that holds everything together. So the sun is in the sky, utterly distant from us in a way, and yet we feel it. God is even more distant in majesty and perfection and holiness, but we feel his glory. The sun is the radiance of God's glory. We are touched and feel it in grace and truth. Let's move on and we see that, the, that Jesus is the exact imprint of God's nature. It says in the NIV here, the exact representation of his being. The picture here is of a die or a press stamping out a coin. And as the coin is stamped out, what is on the press is exactly imprinted onto the coin. Now, we've got to be very careful here. Please don't think of Jesus as just an exact copy of God. The writer means more than that. What the writer means is that what God is, Jesus is. One writer puts it like this. The Son is able to reveal God perfectly because he is one with God essentially. All that God is, Jesus is. So has God spoken to us through his Son? Well, how do we know what God is like? Well, Jesus shows us exactly what God is like. That's how he's spoken to us. All that God is, Jesus is. And so here, we can beware a distorted view of God, seeing, perhaps as some Christians seem to almost, as though the Father has a different temperament from the Son, you know, you feel with some Christians almost as though God the Father is kind of severe and rather distant, which may actually express that individual believer's uh, experience of fatherhood. Jesus is a bit, bit kinder, a bit softer. You know, you, you know, you get Christians almost seem to feel that there's a different temperament in Jesus, that Jesus somehow is more approachable. No, it's not like that. God has spoken to us through his Son. God is saying to us, you want to know what I'm really like? Then look at my son. For the son gives the perfect printout, the perfect representation of God. Uh, one of the writer's concerns, in a sense, it's almost an obsession with the writer to the Hebrews, is that because of Christ, we can approach God. That there is now direct access into the presence of God. You can have the view, you see, that when Jesus was here on earth, I mean, he was so, un- so approachable. I mean, children would run to Jesus. Uh, you know, God the Father sounds a bit more severe. But God has spoken to us. And if Jesus is approachable, then God is saying, you can approach me. Draw near to me, says God, and I will draw near to you. And Jesus has even opened the way for that to happen. Let me put it to you by way of illustration. I want, to, I want you to imagine that uh, I want to go up to Buckingham Palace and see the Queen. 
And so uh, I get on a train now in Bournemouth, and uh, I go up to, uh, I have to go to Waterloo Station from, from Bournemouth, and then I get a, a tube across to Victoria, and I come out of Victoria Station, and I walk down from Victoria Station towards Buckingham Palace, and I come to the front gates of Buckingham Palace, and you know, these days there's an armed soldier on the, on the gates of Buckingham Palace, and so I'm very polite, and I say, excuse me, sir, but uh, uh, my name's John Hosier, I've been a loyal subject of Queen Elizabeth II all my life. Uh, I'd really like to go and see the Queen and ask her something. And the soldier says, well, of course, John Hosier. And he opens the, uh, the gates of Buckingham Palace, and I walk into the big square there in front of the palace itself. So I, I cross the square, and I come to a side door, and now there's an armed policeman at the side door. So again, I'm very polite. I'm saying, I'm John Hosier. Uh, uh, I've been a loyal subject of Queen Elizabeth II all my life. I, I'd like to see my queen and ask her to grant me a request. And he says, sure, John Hosier. And he opens the door uh, to Buckingham Palace, and I go in. So now I'm in the palace, and I'm walking down a long corridor, and I'm opening doors to see if I can find the queen. Uh, but eventually I open one, and it's just before the state opening of Parliament, and there, sitting uh, on a throne, is the queen dressed in all her royal robes. I feel I've got her just at the right time, you see. Uh, so I approach the queen, I kneel down in front of her, and I say, Your Majesty, I'm John Hosier, a loyal subject uh, of Your Majesty all my life. Can I ask you to grant me a request? Friends, let me tell you, it's never going to happen. <laughs> it's never going to happen. I mean, the train would probably break down just outside Bournemouth Station, let her go and get, and get into Buckingham Palace. But I tell you this, God has spoken to us. And this day, today, any day, you can come here, you can go into your room at home, and you can come into the presence of the King of Kings and Lord of Lords and ask him to grant you your request. We have access to the living God. It's uh, put wonderfully in Hebrews. In fact, it was actually prayed by Rob earlier on here in Hebrews 4, uh, 16. Let us then approach the throne of grace with confidence so that we may receive mercy and find grace to help us in our time of need. You want a breakthrough in your life? You need mercy? You need grace? Then come with confidence to the throne of God. God has spoken and God is approachable. We have access to him. I want you to see next that Jesus upholds the universe. We're still working through verse 3. Uh, he sustains all things by his powerful word. Now, in Greek mythology, Atlas carried the world on his shoulders. That was a very passive perspective. Christ sustains the universe with purpose. It's not passive but is actually moving creation towards a glorious consummation. And Colossians 1.17 also speaks of Christ sustaining and holding the whole universe together. The world wasn't just created through Christ, but it was also held together by Christ. Now again, friends, God has spoken to us through his Son. What's he saying? He's telling us that he is committed to what he has created. And so the Son holds everything together. And that really speaks of God's commitment to you and to me, because we are part of his creation. And if God is committed to his creation, then Christ will also hold our life together. Now, there are Christians who 
face difficult times and it's possible to think, oh my, it seems that my whole life is falling apart. God, speak to me. You know, what should I do in these circumstances and situation? And there may be somebody here today who's really desperate. You're like that. You're desperate for God to speak because you feel your life is falling apart. Please listen. God has spoken. And God sustains the whole universe through Christ. Christ holds everything together, not just passively. He's going to bring it to a glorious and positive conclusion. See, the world today is such a mess, isn't it? And we, as preachers, we love to talk about the mess and the collapse of, of the world, and we talk about the world falling apart. But actually, it's still sustained, isn't it? Because Christ holds it all together. My friend, that's true for you as well. Christ will sustain your life, and he will bring it to a glorious conclusion. He who has begun a good work in you will bring it to completion on the day of Christ. That's your life. Now, we can undermine that by failing to grasp what God has spoken and simply wallowing in misery. Please don't do that when God has spoken. I think one of the richest pastoral experiences I've had over the decades is watching believers going through really desperate situations and yet not falling apart. The testimony is that the Christ who upholds the universe also sustains them. Last but one thing here, he made purification uh, for sins. Also there in verse 3, he provided purification for sins. Up to now, the writer has been speaking about the cosmic Christ, really. Uh, The Christ through whom all things are created, the Christ who sustains the whole universe. He now turns to the personal saving work of Christ and speaks about Jesus making purification for sins. In other words, Jesus has cleaned us up. He's taken away our sins. I was reading through the prophecy of Isaiah a little while ago. Ever come across this text? You know how sometimes the text leaps out at you that you may have read before but never somehow seen before? In Isaiah 38, verse 17, uh, God says you have, or the prophet says, you have put all my sins behind your back. He's speaking about God and he says you put all my sins behind your back. I found that so descriptive of God's work in Christ. It's not as though the sins aren't real, but because of Christ's work, God no longer looks at them. He no longer sees them. He sees us covered in the righteousness of Christ. God is angry against sin. That's why God sent his son to die on a cross, to bear sin, to take our guilt and our punishment. But Jesus, having done that and taken sin and guilt for us, our sins are behind God's back. I found that such a releasing word. Now, have you listened, my friend, to what God has spoken about your sin? Christ has purified us. comes out so many times in Hebrews itself. In Hebrews 9, verse 26, if Christ had had to uh, be like the Old Testament priests, he would have had to suffer many times since the creation of the world. But now he has appeared once for all at the end of the ages to do away with sin by the sacrifice of himself. Or chapter 10 and verse 10, and by God's will we have been made holy through the sacrifice of the body of Jesus Christ once for all. Verse 14 of the same chapter, by one sacrifice he has made perfect forever 
those who are being made holy. That's our status before God, perfect forever, being made holy in this body of flesh, but actually God sees us covered with the righteousness of Christ. Christ forgave us all our sins. And there's nothing as important as knowing that we're right with God. God has spoken to us by his Son. And he's saying we're purified, we're free. No longer any condemnation. And then one last thing here, and that is that Jesus sat down at the right hand of the majesty in heaven or the majesty on high. Uh, When you read this, please don't think of literal thrones as though, I think it's very easy when you read about God's, uh, Jesus sitting down at the right right hand of the majesty on high, almost have a mental picture that God the Father sits on a kind of big central throne and beside him and just an inch back there's Jesus sitting on, on the throne on the right hand side, a bit like the Queen and Prince Philip, you know, the Queen's just there and Prince Philip's just slightly back. Uh, even in the early church, they wouldn't have understood it in that way. What they would have understood is that this phrase was speaking of the exaltation of Christ. Uh, we speak even now, don't we, of a right-hand man. I suppose these days we have to say a right-hand person uh, to be politically correct. But uh, we use that expression to speak of a place of honour. And so that's what it means here, that Jesus sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. It's speaking of the fact that through death, resurrection and ascension, Jesus is now exalted to the highest place. He is utterly exalted. Now, you may be aware, of course, that no priest in Israel ever sat down when he was on duty in the temple. And Jesus is represented so often in Hebrews as our great high priest. The priests always had more sacrifices for sin. They were busy all the time. They were on temporal duty. Never had time to sit down. But Jesus, this high priest, he sat down because Jesus' sacrifice was a once and for all sacrifice. Never had to be repeated. So Jesus sits down. And hear this, because Christ is exalted to the highest place, from there he reigns And from there he will return to bring the final touches to our salvation. And to say that Jesus sat down in one way is also to say that he's waiting to come back. Uh, (coughs) uh, When we were in South Africa for the year, we came back for a break over over Christmas, and uh, it's a couple of years back now, and uh, you, you may remember that we had the last couple of years back, uh, some couple of bitterly cold Christmas sort of times. And uh, uh, the day that we were going to fly back to Cape Town after Christmas, it was really, really bitter cold. Uh, there was actually no snow on the ground that day, but it was bitterly cold. And we went up to Heathrow, uh, where we were flying back f- uh, from, and uh, you, you know when you go into airports these days, you, you've, you've, you've logged in, and so you're directed to the fast bag drop, except now it's the slow bag drop, because everybody's logged in, uh, so you're kind of at the end of this long queue, and with your bags, and you kind of snake round, and so we got to the front, where you're going, Cape Town, uh, sorry, we can't take you at the moment, uh, you'll have to come back in half an hour. And I thought that was strange, because usually you can book in at any time on these, these lines. So we went away, had a coffee, uh, exactly half an hour, came back, snaked through again, came to the front of the queue, 
uh, where, where are you going? Cape Town. I'm sorry, you can't, you can't uh, uh, come with your baggage yet. Come back in quarter of an hour. So, so we went off. Exactly quarter of an hour later, we're back. We go through the whole process again. Come to the front of the queue. Well, what flight are you looking for? Cape Town. Uh, I'm sorry, you can't... I said, excuse me, I'm a very patient man, but I've come to the front of this queue three times. Uh, he said, ah, oh, he said, Cape Town, would you please go over there? And suddenly I realised there was another queue of rather sad-looking people, and kind of we went there and just hanging around. And eventually an official turns up, and I kid you not, this is what he said. He says, I'm sorry to tell you, but your plane is broken. Now, that's a bit alarming. You think, you know, the, with the wing hanging off, the, the, the wheels coming off. Uh, but he said, and if you believe this, you're the most gullible person on earth. He said, we are getting you another plane so that your takeoff will not be delayed. And I thought, oh, yes. So, <laughs> so we wait there. And uh, eventually, after a long delay, we go to where the plane is meant to depart from. Of course, there's no plane there, so we wait uh, longer. And eventually, they wheel a plane out. So you think, you know, they put airfix glue on it and stuck it back together or whatever. Anyway, so eventually, and now we're beyond takeoff time altogether, eventually we get on the plane and uh, we all settle down. And the pilot comes on and he says, well, folks, he says, you, you know that... Uh, it's bitterly cold weather at the moment. And he said, I have to be frank with you, we don't actually uh, have enough de-icers here at Heathrow to cope with this very cold weather. Uh, so we're in a very long queue, I'm afraid, till the de-icer gets to us. So we sit there and wait and wait. Then uh, sometime later, the pilot comes on again. He says, hi, folks, this is your captain speaking. You know, that's how they speak. And he says, uh, sorry to tell you this, but the airport is just closed down for security reasons uh, because there's a guy in the Emirates plane just by us, and he says he's got a gun, and so they've closed the whole airport down. So the airport was then shut. There were flashing blue lights everywhere, and uh, they get the people off the Emirates flight and so on. Of course, it was all a, you know, all a false scare, but they had to go through security. So captain comes back on and says, OK, folks, uh, Heathrow is now open again. I have to tell you that once again we're in the queue waiting for the de-icer to come round. Over five hours late, <laughs> we take off from Heathrow. But what I haven't told you is that we had been upgraded to business class. <laughs> so we didn't mind at all. I mean, we had, a, we had a flat bed, we had champagne. I mean, we were looking back down there for poor people, back down the end of the plane, you know. I mean, we, we, were, we were as smug as anything because we had been upgraded to business class. So we weren't bothered about the delay at all. We were very happy sitting there and waiting. Well, let me tell you, my friends, Jesus has been upgraded from this earth to the highest place in glory. And Jesus is very happy, sitting down, waiting to take off and return. God has spoken to us through his Son. Do you hear what he's saying? He has made one effective sacrifice for our sin. Therefore, he sat down. He is exalted to the highest place, he's seated at the right hand of the majesty on high. He's seated, waiting to return. Jesus is coming back. And all this is told to us so that we might have confidence and hope. The majestic Christ is in control. And we can be saying, oh, speak to me, Lord. But God has spoken through his Son. He's in control of your life and my life. 
Let's listen to God's voice. God has spoken to us through his Son. We can trust him in all things. Why? Because Jesus Christ is utterly supreme. Amen? Let's stand together, can we? And uh, perhaps I could ask the band to come up. We'll just sing again in a moment. Uh, but I'd just like us to, to pray together for a few moments. I'd like to pray for you. Obviously, I don't know the situation of people here, but I'm just aware that there, there could be those of you here that are feeling a bit desperate at the moment. You know, you, you, may, feel, you may feel your life's falling apart. You, you, may be, you may have been thinking, oh, why doesn't God do something? Why doesn't God speak to me? I hope this afternoon you've heard that God is speaking to you through his Son. But at the same time, there's an invitation, and that is to come with confidence to the throne of grace. Because there is, there is mercy, there is grace to help in a time of need. And Father, I want to pray right here this afternoon for any believer here right now who's feeling a bit desperate, wondering what's happening in their life, can't put it all together, why is this happening to me? Please speak to me. And God, I pray that you will minister to them right now. Well, I pray for, I, I just sense there's, there's one or two people here pretty desperate financially, and you're thinking, oh, you know, what's happening? How am I going to get through this? Lord, I pray that they will find the peace of God in their situation right now, that you will bring to them grace and mercy. I pray for deliverance, Lord, but even in this moment, I pray for the peace of God to invade their hearts and minds, that they will trust the supremacy of Christ that the one who sustains the whole universe in existence and will bring it to a glorious conclusion, that Jesus will sustain your life at the present time. Lord Jesus, I pray that we will really trust in your utter supremacy, looking for that day of your glorious return when all things will be made new. The whole universe will be regenerated and we will reign and rule with Jesus forever. Lord, I pray, continue to minister your grace to us in these moments. In Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. In our second session, we'll move on and talk about the church corporately and speak about the church as the bride of Christ. But let's, uh, let's just worship as we, we close right now.